You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we will be looking at Leviticus chapter 9, so I do invite you to turn with me there. It should be on page 87, beginning on page 87 and on page 88 of the Pew Bibles, if you are using one of those. Remember, we're working through Leviticus, and uh, I think you'll, you're seeing for the first time, I am making good on my promise that we're not going verse by verse through the whole book. We're going thematically, hitting the big topics, the big issues to help us understand the whole of the book, what's going on here in Leviticus. We see Leviticus is, is set up to help us understand how do we approach and commune with a holy God. Remember at the end of Exodus, God entered the tabernacle, the tabernacle that Israel constructed according to God's commands perfectly. Everything God commanded, they did. God descended upon the tabernacle, but Israel couldn't enter. God's holiness was too much. They feared for their lives. They couldn't enter. And so Leviticus opens and shows us how we, how Israel, and then how we can commune with a holy God, how first we can approach him, and then how we can commune with him. It's not because of our efforts. It's God alone who has provided the means. We looked at the five sacrifices, chapters roughly one through five, a little bit into chapter six. We skipped the rest of chapter six and seven, which goes back through all of those sacrifices again, this time from the priest's perspective instead of from the offerer's perspective. And then we skipped over chapter eight. Chapter eight was an ordination service to consecrate all of Aaron and his sons for service as priests to God. And so we skipped over that. We're kind of coming in the middle of this worship service. There's a big worship service to consecrate the priests. And now the priests can offer the sacrifices that we just looked at for the last five sermons. They're offering these sacrifices to God. And so we come to this wonderful worship service, this large public service, the first one of its kind in Israel's history. And so with that in mind, we will begin reading Leviticus chapter 9. We'll read the whole thing, but just so you can have in your mind where we're going, the first paragraph is God's instructions to Israel, Moses, the priest, for how to do this worship service. Uh, The next few paragraphs are Israel and the priests implementing that. And then the final paragraph, beginning verse 22, this is the response. What happens after the worship service, after the offerings are uh, offered, then the Lord comes to his people. So we're going to read Leviticus chapter 9, all of it, verses 1 through 24. So hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus 9. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord and say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf for a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering and an ox and a ram for a peace offering for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil for today the Lord will appear to you and they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord and Moses said this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you then Moses said to Aaron 
draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf for the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offerings on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. And then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offerings and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the first worship service of God's newly covenanted people on Mount Sinai. He, gave, he made himself a people. He gave them a law to obey. He gave them a, a sanctuary to construct. And then he gave them sacrifices to conduct. And this is the first worship service of these people of God. The newly ordained priests are presiding and the people gather. People offer their sacrifices and the people and the, and the priests offer them to the Lord. This, it's, this is a big moment in the life of Israel. It's hard for us as we read through a book such as Leviticus, sometimes it feels dry and dusty. It's hard for us to understand how big of a deal this moment was. All the people gathered. They wanted to see what was going to happen. Everybody was on the edge of their seats, as it were. What would God do with Israel's sacrifices? Could God's people, after all, enter into the presence of God? And we see with this moment, there is a resounding yes to these answers. This is an incredible conclusion to a glorious story. God has provided the means of fellowship with him. God brought these people out of Egypt to worship him. And we're seeing something of the culmination of that here. These people are worshiping God with everything that is in them. And as we look at this passage this evening, we're going to go about it a little bit differently we're going to look at seven lessons for us about acceptable corporate worship. Seven lessons for us about acceptable 
corporate worship, as we understand this acceptable worship that Israel rendered to God. So seven lessons. We'll look at these in turn, and of course, they should be brief. So first, we worship according to God's command. We worship according to God's command. If there's one point that this this chapter drives home, it's that Israel did what God required of them. Israel offered the offerings as God commanded. It says this four times in the chapter. And it says other things that reinforce this. It says, according to the rule, they did all that was asked. When we go through all the, the monotonous detail of how they offered the sacrifices, that's word for word how God had commanded them to, to offer sacrifices earlier in the book of Leviticus. It's Moses telling us they did everything perfectly. They did it the right way. They obeyed God in their worship. They worshiped according to God's command. Chapter 9 follows on the heels of chapter 8. In chapter 8, there's this this uh, rhythm through the whole chapter it says, and Aaron's and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Eight times it says that in one chapter. And we continue that through chapter nine. They did everything the Lord commanded. They were obedient. They were doing what God called them to do. And this is instructive for us, particularly in con- the context of worship. We don't get to make up how we worship God. We worship according to his command. Now, of course, we're not worshiping according to the Old Testament law because this has been fulfilled in Christ. But our worship is not something we get to do willy-nilly. Our worship is something we offer to God as he has called us to worship. There is acceptable, and as we'll see next week, unacceptable offerings and worship we can bring to God. And so acceptable worship is according to God's command. When we come to worship, we stick to what God has called us to do. We don't do anything extra. We don't do anything less. We do what God has called us to do. And our worship today and under the new covenant is word and sacrament and prayer. This is the core of what we do as as God's worshiping people. We're called to do these things. And yes, we see examples in scripture of call to worship and all these other elements that we do in our worship services. And the core, though, is this, word, sacrament, and prayer. This is what acceptable worship to God is today. So first, we worship according to God's command. Second, the order of worship conveys the truths of the gospel. This is interesting. As we go back through this chapter, uh, there's a particular order that these sacrifices are offered in. And I think it tells us something very significant about worship services. First, the priests were called to offer two offerings for themselves. First was the sin offering, or as we had previously said, purification offering is probably a better way to think of that. So they offered the purification offering and then the burnt offering for all the priests. The purification offering was to forgive the sins, the known sins of the priests, and also to purify them ceremonially. And then the burnt offering was offered to to indicate atonement for these men. And so they offered these two offerings for the priests, and then they turned around and offered four sacrifices for the congregation. And what we see here is is a beautiful picture of how these sacrifices from chapters one through five work out in practice. They're theologically connected. And we see this happening first with that purification offering. 
the, the uncleanliness being washed away, the known sin being confessed to the Lord, being washed away. The second offering was the burnt offering, the whole animal being rendered to God in fire, showing that the fire that, that we ought to receive, the whole person being offered to God in atonement for sin. The third offering that the priest offered for the people was the grain offering. Remember, this was bringing grain and cooked uh, bread of different kinds, bringing this as a tribute to the king. It's a thanksgiving of sorts. It's saying, you are the king, you are worthy. And, And it's absolutely appropriate to offer that as a response to atonement, being forgiven of sins, being atoned for. Then we bring thanks and render thanks to God. And that's why the grain offering is brought next. And then finally, the peace offering is brought. The peace offering. This was an animal, you remember, an animal sacrificed, but only a small part of it was offered on the altar. The rest of it was taken home by the offerers. And it was to be a grand feast, a grand meal, a joyous occasion to say, look at what it's like to know God. It's a feast. It's a great celebration of God's people. So the purification offering begins by purifying the people, the the burnt offering, atoning for their sins, the grain offering, rendering thanks to God. And then finally, this peace offering that shows the joy of salvation that we have, a wonderful logic to these, these sacrifices being offered. It's very intentional. And of course, through all this, as we've noted, appropriate songs would be sung. Prayers would be, pray, would be prayed by the priests. This was a wonderful worship service. And we see worship is formative. You see the story that's being told every time they go through this order of sacrifices that you need to be cleansed, you need to be atoned for. And in light of that, now you render thanks to the almighty and gracious God and then enjoy the feast that he sets for you. You're going through that week by week. It's formative in the same way our worship is designed intentionally to be formative. And we think particularly of our service of worship in the morning when we're called to the presence of God, we immediately understand we are sinful. And so what can we only do? Confess our sins. But then we hear that glorious assurance that in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And in line of that, we sing praises. We hear God's word read and we hear God's word proclaimed. And then we get to feast together at the foot of the cross, the Lord's Supper, week in and week out. There's a wonderful gospel logic to the order of worship. We see it here in the Old Testament. That's something that we ought to continue to do today as it forms us and shapes us. We're not told exactly how you're required to do a worship service today, but these principles are important and we should take them to heart and understand their significance. So the order of worship conveys the truths of the gospel. Third, sinful worshipers need the mediation of a priest. God has appointed priests for the Old Testament people because the people themselves weren't able to come to a holy God. They needed a mediator, even though they had sacrifices, even though they were atoned for, they still needed a mediator between God and man. The priests themselves had to be purified. They offered these sacrifices for themselves because they in and of themselves had no business being a mediator between God and man. And of course, this whole system of the priesthood, of the high priest, shows us very clearly the role of Christ for us. And this is the point of of the book of Hebrews. The author makes this point repeatedly and over and over. Christ has no need to offer sacrifices for himself. He is pure. He is holy. There's no offering of of purification 
needed for him. And he has offered himself as the once for all sacrifice on our behalf. So he stands before us as the high priest who mediates between God and man. And he also offers himself as the sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice needed. So these priests show us Christ and what he's done. Our fourth lesson, God conveys his presence and blessing when his people worship him. This whole service in Leviticus 9 is all about God coming to dwell with his people. God making himself known among his people. Begins in verse 4, the Lord will appear to you. Verse 6, the glory of the Lord will appear to you. Verse 23, at the end of this, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. God came and met with his people. And that's what worship is. This is God in a covenantal fashion calling a people into his presence to say, I will dwell with you and give you every blessing. So it's not just his presence, but his blessing we see as well. And at the end, twice Aaron offers blessing of God's people. Verse 22 and verse 23, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And then after he comes out of the tent of meeting, he again blesses the people. This is what God's presence does. It blesses us, his people. Many think, many Jewish uh, commentators think that this was the first time that that ironic blessing was pronounced upon God's people. That blessing that was announced in Numbers 6, you know it. Almost every Sunday morning, you receive it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God's blessing was written upon his people by his priests. And I don't think you and I ought to undersell the importance of these aspects of God's presence and blessing when, he's, when we come to worship him. God is here. I love that hymn we sang, the Charles Spurgeon hymn. Amidst us, our beloved stands. He comes among his people. That's what he says in Matthew 18, right? For when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus Christ meets with his people. He comes to dwell with us. He is in this place in a special covenantal, redemptive way. He is not elsewhere. And of course, God continues to bless us and write those same blessings upon his people before we leave. At the end of the service, the, the priests held up their hands here to bless the people. And at the end of our services, the minister always lifts up his hands and blesses God's people because we see this continuing, the apostolic tradition in the New Testament. This is what God does to remind us with this powerful gospel word as we go out, that you are mine and you have every blessing in the heavenly places. So God conveys his presence and his blessing when his people worship him. Five, worship depends upon God's consuming fire of justice being satisfied. Worship depends on God's consuming fire of justice being satisfied. Something incredibly unique happened here in Leviticus 9 that really sets the trajectory for all of worship that's coming after it. And this is verse 24. After the, offer, uh, the sacrifices are offered, after the blessings are pronounced, and Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting where they previously couldn't go, now they go in, 
as the representatives of the people and Aaron as the representative of all the priesthood, they come back out. And what happens in verse 24? And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. A supernatural fire came down from heaven and burned up everything that was left on the altar. Divine justice was being satisfied. The fire, the consuming fire of God was satisfied. Instead of coming to consume the people of Israel, it came and consumed the sacrifice that stood in their place. Can you imagine how terrifying that is? Standing with all the people of Israel, watching this worship service happening watching the sacrifices and the smoke going up. You see Aaron and Moses going into the tent of meeting and maybe you see the glory cloud coming upon it and then they come out and then you see out of the heavens this, this burning ball of fire descending towards you. It'd be pretty scary, right? This is an incredible scene where this ball of fire comes out of heaven and launches right into the middle of the burnt offering and lifts up everything, destroys everything, consumes everything. Is a very violent verb. means eaten or devoured or consumed. This violent image of a supernatural fire coming and burning up everything that's on that altar. And it's consuming that altar instead of a sinful people. This is a picture of grace for God's people. This is a picture of Jesus Christ and what he went through for us. The divine justice that he received on the cross, how he was consumed for us. He was our substitutionary atonement. This is all because we can stand under the wings of Christ, that we can worship God. Otherwise, as we'll see next chapter, that consuming fire comes for inappropriate worshipers. It comes for unclean worshipers. It comes for sinful people. But when we come to God as he is appointed, under the wings of Christ, Jesus is the one who is consumed by fire. Worship depends upon God's consuming fire of justice being satisfied. Sixth, true worship results in joy. I love it. After the people see this, they're scared for their lives, that this bolt of fire out of heaven might be coming for them. After they see it's burning up everything on the, on the altar, when the people saw it, verse 24, they shouted and fell on their faces. What joy they had. They shouted loud shouts of joy. They cried, praise be to God. And then they fell on their faces in humble worship. Because worship reorients us. Worship reminds us of what is ultimately important. Heaven, heaven now becomes the center of our focus. Jesus Christ becomes the one upon whom we gaze when we worship. We're reminded the toils and trials of this world are toils and trials, but they are not the ultimate. They're not, they don't have the final say. They're not ultimate things. Jesus Christ has conquered. It has been finished for you. And how can you not respond but with joy and praises and loud shouts? We went to a PCA church in Nashville, Tennessee. I worshiped there for about the 10 years I lived there. And it was a large cavernous uh, sanctuary. It was very large. It sat, seated maybe 1,500 people. Large church. It was full, uh, full of stone uh, walls. All the pews were, were wooden. There was not a single uh, piece of cloth in the entire room because they wanted the organ to overpower you in the room. They wanted it to be reverberating. They wanted you to hear everything. It was like a cathedral. It was beautiful. 
And yes, we were a bunch of, you know, maybe stodgy Presbyterians, maybe similar to how we are, right? Not a lot of shouting going on. But at the middle of a sermon, every single week, there's one man who sat right on the front row. And, and every sermon, at some point, he would shout, amen! You'd hear it reverberating through the whole building. Amen, amen, amen. If you weren't paying attention, you realize, oh, I missed a good point. But that's the loud shouts of joy that's appropriate from time to time, not if you're trying to be distracting. But the loud shouts of joy when we hear the gospel, the triumph of Jesus Christ, we shout amen. What a joy to know the grace and love of Jesus. And that's why they were shouting. They knew they were covered in the blood of the sacrifice. And they, their sins were atoned for. And so true worship results in joy. And then number seven, worship demands faith. Worship demands faith. Going through the motions is not what God is calling Israel to or what he's calling us to. None of this was just about doing the right thing so you check all the right boxes so you can be in the right standing with God. All of this was designed to present the worshiper clearly with a choice between are you going to lay down your own life for yourself or are you going to have a sacrifice lay down its life for you? Are you going to trust in the sacrifice or are you going to trust in yourself? All of these sacrifices were geared for that end to make you say, am I trusting in God's appointed substitute or am I trusting in myself? And if you walk through these services week in and week out, day in and day out in Israel, thinking it's all, thinking you're checking the right boxes because you offer the right sacrifices, you're missing the point. The Old Testament is full of these statements. Like Hosea 6.6, 6, where God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's not saying sacrifices are unimportant or, or any of these things are, are not what they should be doing. We're saying the primary is the trust of the worshiper. And yes, I've appointed these means, sacrifices then, now it's simply through the word and the sacraments. I've appointed these means that would drive you to greater faith in Jesus Christ. That's why they're here, that we would grow in steadfast love, that we would grow in the knowledge of God, that we would trust in him in our worship. There's no such thing as dead worship. I should say there should be no such thing as dead worship because worship engages us on every single level of our being, our desires, our mind, our will, and our trust with faith. Worship demands faith. And so we must engage with worship. We can't simply just show up and listen to a sermon and let it kind of float over us and say, yeah, that was a nice sermon today. We must engage with it, with every part of our being. We must sing the songs from the heart. We must recite the creeds as if we actually believe them because it's designed to engage our faith and trust in Jesus so that we would look to him over and over because that's what we need to grow deeper into Christ. And that's why God has given us worship. We can prepare for it. We can throw ourselves into the love of God for us as we hear his word, as we pray, as we sing, and we partake in the sacraments. This is truly an amazing scene in Leviticus 9. And maybe some might say it's the pinnacle, right? This is what, this is the problem that was solved. The problem beginning Leviticus has been solved. Now we can go into the tent of meeting. We can now, through our representative priest, we can commune with God. 
And pretty quickly, we'll come down off this pinnacle and see there's additional problems we've got to deal with next time. But this is a wonderful, joyous scene. That when we obey God and worship as he's called us to, when we engage our whole being and trust in Christ, we understand worship is only based upon Christ alone being our substitute. Then we will worship God rightly. We will bring glory to him. He will commune with us, be with us, and bless us. As we understand more and more, the consuming fire of his justice has been satisfied. So now we come and worship as sons. So let us rejoice. Because God gives you, God receives your worship because of Jesus Christ. Not because your worship is good enough, not because what you've done is sufficient, but because of Jesus Christ. And so we can rejoice in that. And do not fall under the consuming fire of God's justice. Christ has done it. And that all who look to him will be saved and will enjoy this blessed presence of God forever and ever. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord, you have much to teach us from your word. And for these small tidbits, we are thankful. Above all, we're thankful for how it shows us the love of Christ the sacrifice of Christ, and how you've received us into the number. Oh, Lord, grow us in our faith. And we pray, Father, that the faith, uh, that those who may not even trust in you this day, you would give them faith, that your spirit would be at work, drawing all men to yourself. We praise you and bless you, our God and our King. Equip us for every good work this week, that we would glorify our Father in heaven as we love our neighbors as ourselves. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.